So try to align yourself uh, with the long-term business goals. But I can hear people saying, yeah, but what about innovation? The goal is to be in line with the vision and then the way in which you align with the vision, that's where you get to be creative. That's where you get to bring new business ideas. That's where you get to build new business models or new services, not in rethinking the company strategy or rethinking the company vision, because that's usually set. Hey everyone, welcome to Designers, where we explore why, how and what design and designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking and innovative creators on the planet and inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and also make an impact in the world. In this episode, I chat with Brittany Arthur on the connection of culture and innovation. Brittany is the co-founder of Design Thinking Japan and has lived in many different countries especially Germany and Japan. In the episode, we'll learn how design as facilitation can foster business innovation and growth. And we also learn about projects where she saws people's life change through creative problem solving. We also learn how design thinking can break company structures, hierarchies, and bridge cultural differences. Further, we learn how to measure the impact of design facilitation and how to leverage the digital layer on a hybrid world of digital physical facilitation. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here today with Brittany Arthur. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, Sebastian, it's really a pleasure is all mine. I'm very looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward. So we're going to talk about obviously Japan, innovation in Japan, uh, since you are co-founded Design Thinking Japan. Uh, pushing forward design thinking and innovation methods uh, in Japan and uh, beyond. And you're also doing a podcast yourself called uh, Business Karaoke. So we're going to talk about innovation culture. We're going to talk about gaps between cultures, how design thinking can actually bring people together, uh, how facilitation methods can actually bridge cultures. So I'm really looking forward to that. But I think what would be really great for the audience uh, would be if you could just give uh, outline a little bit about your journey. How did it all start out to you? Because well, you have now uh, a strong focus on Japan, but you're not originally from there. You had quite a journey going to different countries. And I think this would be great for the audience. Yes, of course. So I'll, I'll try to keep it short and I'll save the fact, you know, that I'm from Australia and I have two brothers and a sister and all that kind of stuff. I'll like save that information and I'll go maybe to what's maybe a little bit more uh, relevant for everyone. So I was always passionate about people. So for me, it was natural that I kind of fell into business because I wanted to look for somewhere where you dealt with people and business was one of those places. When it came to Japan, I, Japan was somehow always uh, in my blood. I don't know why or how. The same way in Europe, uh, many countries learn English as a second language. In Australia, we learn an Asian language. And my school ended up learning Japanese, which is by chance it was Japanese. My brothers, for example, they learned Indonesian. Um, so really quite different. And I knew really almost from day one that I loved this language. I loved being a part of just, just seeing how beautiful it is when you write it, for example. However, thinking and looking at kanji on the whiteboard or in the blackboard in those days and thinking it's cool versus building a career requires two very different um, paths, right? So I knew for me that it was really something that I wanted to do. So I went and I studied, I have a background in business and, and Japanese. And after university, I went straight into working for Japanese companies. Everything was pretty straightforward up until then. 
And then in 2011, when I was working for a German company, actually in Japan, I started not only looking into better ways of doing things because I recognized that we were leading these multi stakeholder, multicultural, multi-language projects. And somehow some were effective and some were successful and some weren't. And I was looking into why that would be. And then before I found out what the answer would be, there was the largest earthquake in Japan's modern history in 2011. And exactly at that time, I was basically required to move from Japan to Germany to continue with, with, with my work. And I thought that was a really great opportunity for me because that was where uh, the D school was, which is um, at that time in 2011 was one of, I think maybe two, I think they had the the one at Stanford uh, in um, in the States. And then they had the happy um, school of design thinking. And that was in 2011. There's been a few additional D school since then, but back in 2011, that was like one of the first ones. And then I thought this is actually maybe a really great opportunity for me to, to look for answers to that question that I was looking for, which is how do we get people to work together more effectively? And how do we, how can we get to our goals more effectively, really? And then uh, I spent eight years in Germany at the D school and then also working in a European context because uh, I really actually wanted to come back to Japan. I wanted to bring human, human centered design and design thinking back to Japan. And I thought it would happen much, much more quickly than it actually did, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just one of those things in Japan, things take time. And then in 2017, there was, we had an opportunity to go to Japan and take our business from Germany to Japan and uh, start not only running human centered design sessions for um well, we, we run it for two reasons. One is for innovation. So for businesses to solve business problems. The other one is set for education to really build that skill set in Japan. And that was in 2017. And basically since 2017, Japan has been my focus um, since then. I uh, loved my time in Europe. Um, I miss Germany all the time. Uh, but uh, for some reason, it was it was the right time to move to Japan. And now our business completely focuses on the Japanese market. And the reason that the podcast even exists uh, really was because of COVID, because I am a facilitator in my heart, in my soul. I'm a facilitator. I love talking to people and isolation for me was like the worst thing ever. It was so hard. And, you know, my husband was just like, I'm sick of listening to you talking about like human centered design in Japan, like talk to someone else, like start a podcast, like start a YouTube channel, but like, stop talking to me about it. Like I've had enough. <laughs> so I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to do it. And um, basically that was like a year and a half ago. And now the podcast is almost like a year and a half old. And we talk about human centered design and innovation, not as it is in the textbooks as when I studied at university, because what I studied at university just did not does not equip someone to be an effective business person today. And that's why Business Karaoke exists. And that's kind of brings, and I love talking to people who love talking about human centered design, which brings us basically today to you and I having a conversation about those things. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Thank you so much for outlining that. And I think, I you know, it's so important. I always tell this uh, also to, you know, young designers, if they have the chance to, um, experience through their education or especially like in their early uh, 20s and 30s to um, go to different uh, places, experience different cultures. Uh, this makes you so much more of a complete uh, creative because you really understand how to deal with different cultures and um, you know opens up your mind also for different perspectives. So, so great that you, you had the chance to kind of hop between different countries and sort of pick uh, the different 
different learnings, I guess, from all of these countries. I'm wondering a little bit, I mean, when you were uh, getting into the topic of design thinking, I think it was probably also less mature overall than it is maybe right now. But how was it overall when you were hopping between the different countries when it comes to the overall maturity of innovation methods and innovation cultures like design thinking as one of an example? How did you, what was your experience there? Sure. So that's a really great question. Um, and the reason why I guess maturity of the conversation around design thinking or human-centered design in Japan is so important is because the more equipped that you are, or the more equipped that a community is, the more likely that they are to create culture change, right? And so when we think about human-centered design, not only as a methodology, but also as a mindset that encourages a culture shift. In order to get to culture, we need community. But in order to get community, we need we really need capability, which is really a standard level of skill. And in 2007, when we were bringing human-centered design to Japan, we were talking about, should we say the word design thinking? Or shall we say the word design shiko? So imagine being mm -hmm. in a conversation where you haven't even got the language set, right? And if you haven't got the language set, you can't have deep, meaningful conversations mm -hmm. to create impactful change, right? So in 2017, we hadn't even decided or defined the words that we use in Japanese for innovation yet. Um, which is actually why the business karaoke podcast is called business karaoke. Because when I try to explain to Japanese people, use an innovation mindset, you know, be open. And it's a flat hierarchy, right? That they think like, what the hell does that mean? Because innovation is also a, um, a, a an English word. So it doesn't really mean anything. But if I tell a Japanese person, think about this innovation workshop in the same way that you would go to a karaoke bar immediately. They know what I'm talking about. They know that everyone's going to have a turn. They know that they have to support each other. They know that it's for a short period of time. They know that you have to get out of the building. They know that you're going to feel uncomfortable. So for me, in 2017, we hadn't even defined the wording for innovation um, or human centered design in Japan, which actually did, I, I would say then, if you think about on a world stage, especially, for example, if you compare to markets like Europe or the US, they were much more advanced. I would say 2011 was even a time where the US was quite advanced. And, if, and then if you think, for example, about Germany, Germany was kind of more around probably like 2013, 2014, I would say Germany came really into its maturity in human-centered design. And it's of course still still growing, but I do remember that you had a good community of human-centered designers in Germany in 2012, 2013, 2014. Whereas in Japan, we, um, we also run the Toyoko Design Thinking Meetup We're the only bilingual human-centered design or uh, design thinking meetup in the country. So this is still very, still very new. That being said, I feel very excited about what what Japan can do because there's a lot of lessons we can save ourselves because we've seen the growth of Europe, we've seen the growth of America, so we can just simply learn and then maybe create the Japanese story. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think a lot of excitement ahead. I think. Um, what do you think are some of the main differences when you think about maybe the innovation culture then uh, between Japan and maybe some of the Western countries we have been living in? 
First things first is speed. Companies in Japan are looking, are long-term thinking countries and or companies. And I know that we hear that, but just to give you some data about what that really means is that 56% of companies over a hundred years old are Japanese companies. So Japanese companies in general are, are long, a longer term thinking. And so when we start that, when we think about things like design sprints, or we think about short iteration cycles, I would say, this is for me, one of the biggest hurdles, um, trying to instill urgency or trying to instill a little bit of speed into Japanese uh, companies than you would see, for example, more in other Western companies that tend to move a little bit more quickly. While that's a really good thing that Western companies can move a little bit quickly, you also see that the fire burns out very quickly as well. Okay, boom, we launch a product, we launch a service, we launch a project. That's great. Four weeks later, who's responsible? Nobody knows, right? Whereas in Japan, you'll take much more time kind of bringing the project to life, but it tends to stay alive a little longer. More care, right? To really follow through, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So when you got into the innovation culture in um, Japan, and now we have been learning um, about it um, since, um, you know, uh, quite a while, How do you feel about the difference maybe to other countries in the region? Is it comparable? Do you think like Japan is very different to maybe some of the, the other countries uh, in the region of Asia or, or some of the learnings you can make in terms of maybe comparison between you know, Western and, and maybe Eastern culture? Sort of, do you have anything that you can sort of like abstract from there? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, but I'm not necessarily one that I'm super equipped to answer. So the same way that I lived in Germany for eight years, I don't know the first thing about French or France, um, but I do know, but I can speak German and I know about Germany uh, is the same thing for Japan. I'm there. I very much uh, know the Japanese culture and, and language. The thing, however, that we can keep in mind for the Asian region in general uh, is that it's extremely collectivist, which means that group group consensus and stakeholder buy-in is essential. We also see that long-term thinking tends to be much more of an Asian characteristic uh, than other places. Another thing that we even look at if we zoom out of the region a little bit, we can even look at the same way that you can kind of break up uh, Western, Eastern Europe. You can also break up kind of Northern and like Southeastern Asia, whereas you have some really exciting countries coming up like Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, that are in, that are investing in technology And that are moving and are, and are growing at a very, very high speed. And especially if we think about, you know, countries like South Korea, I think the profile of the most connected person on the planet is a South Korean female teenager. You know, so if we think about that, um, I think the Asian region is a really exciting place to be, not only population wise, is in terms of there's some really great and exciting demographics, but I also think the Asian region is, is an exciting region to go into because it's a little bit different to this kind of like short-term thinking, quick win Western mindset, I think working with an Asian partner or even seeing what comes, what kind of innovation can come out of Asia, I think is certainly something to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it totally makes sense. The French-German comparison made me think a little bit. <laughs> There are for sure some differences. If you think about maybe some of your first experiences uh, with the topic of design thinking, uh, were there any kind of particular projects um, you may uh, had in the past that really made you realize the positive impact that you can have uh, to an organization, to business, to society, to design thinking, and can maybe share some light on, on maybe a, a particular project uh, you can talk about. Yeah. 
Sure, absolutely. When we think about human-centered design or design thinking, we often think in terms of disruptive innovation, these big, huge changes, the changes that you know break business models and create new markets. Um, but for me, one of the really exciting moments of human cent- or implementing or utilizing human-centered design in Japan wasn't a, what we call big eye innovation, so like big disruptive innovation. Rather, it was more like process improvement, more like small eye innovation. We're working with an accounting department within a very, very large Japanese company. And this accounting department had a few problems. One being that they were consistently late every month. And accounting departments being late is a problem. It's a problem from literally everybody. So this was a problem. And another thing we also started seeing is that not only were they running late in most of their processes, but they also had an extremely high sick day ratio. So a lot of people were taking sick days and you can imagine it's because of the stress, right? So we started doing some digging. We started understanding. We said, what's kind of going on. Firstly, because in the human-centered design, design thinking, before you jump into solutions, uh, we ask what the problem is. So if we didn't do that, maybe we would have said, okay, accounting, here's your new roadmap about how to keep on time, or here's your new app that helps you keep your documents on the cloud to save time or whatever. But before doing that, we didn't jump to solutions. We asked the question, what's really going on? And the accounting department said, we can't begin our work until we get data from these teams. Mm -hmm. So then we started asking these other teams, okay, uh, when do you pass accounting data? And they said, oh, you know, it's, it's not really that important on my list of things to do. So I just kind of, whenever they remind me, I like just send it over. And then we started recognizing that something that is absolutely critical to one department is a nice to have for another department, but they didn't know that, right? So it wasn't necessarily that, you know, that this other department that accounting was working with was trying to sabotage them or they didn't like accounting. They wanted to make their lives difficult. (laughs) That wasn't what was going on. What was going on is that they they just didn't know. Right. So what we want to do and very often human centered design is that we want to create awareness. So we ran a workshop that included both the accounting department, this other department in order to map out. We used a journey map to map out the current process, and then we iterated on that journey map to create an ideal state, an ideal journey. And in that session, you know, you heard things like, oh, I had no idea that's so important. I had no, and you know, you had some accounting people crying in the room because they were saying things like, I've been suffering from this and I haven't been able to go to like my, my, my daughter's like theater rehearsal. I haven't been able to go to my son's football games because I haven't been able to leave work on time simply because there was a lack of communication in the organization. So this was not only affecting how, how they did their jobs, but how they lived their lives. After iterating on that and creating a, a journey that was that was reasonable both for accounting and for the other department, we started seeing not only uh, was, was accounting no longer late anymore, the thing that I felt most proud about was that the sick days went down, that people were no longer stressed, because I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think it's acceptable in our world that people are sick, physically sick from their jobs. And this is why for me, human-centered design is so important is because we want to not only create human products and services that are human-centric, but we also want to create a workforce and a way of working that's human-centric because we spend so much time at work, especially if you're a Japanese worker, you spend a lot of time at work. So for me, that's probably one project that stands out. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. 
I think it also shows that I think maybe the what is maybe the most important project to some people is not maybe the most flashy news, but it's about yeah. the most meaningful impact you can make to people's life. And I think, you know, I can connect to that, that you know, these are the, the sort of projects that um, you will remember most, you know, comparable to maybe the, the most uh, flashy projects. So uh, thanks for pointing that out too. Were there any negative experiences you made in all of that? Of course, you had to kind of bridge some, uh, build some bridges uh, between people, departments, mm -hmm. cultures. So I'm wondering, you know, I think there might be some, also maybe some negative experience the audience could mm -hmm. learn from any kind of failures in projects that you, where you took learnings away. Sure. The learning experiences, as, as, they, as they say, they suck, but they instruct you know, mm -hmm. so they're, you know, they're not good, but you know, you can at least learn something. The negative experiences for me have, have themes. And one of those themes is not having a clear outcome or an, or a clear goal. So for example, you know, we were, and this is particularly difficult if you're a facilitator and you're not in the client team, nor are you in like the product team that you're like this, you're like just hired to facilitate the session. For example, this is where some people can get really into trouble where they don't have the context of what's going on with the client. So for me, number one thing that you can is literally a Shinkansen ticket, like literally a bullet train ticket to failure is not being clear on what the client is expecting. Is the client expecting a high level prototype? as an outcome? Are they expecting a low level prototype as an outcome? Are they expecting ideas or are they expecting, for example, like a reframe of the problem? So, which is another thing that when you're working with a client, you have to make sure that you're managing that problem space and the solution space that you can't, if you're running, like if the first session, you're probably not going to get to solutions. You're probably still working on reframing the problem. And if the client doesn't understand that in human-centered design, we reframe problems before we solve for them, this is going to not meet their expectations. And you're going to have frustration on the client side because, you know, th this happens, especially with larger design agencies that charge, you know, that you'll get a bill for, you know, $100,000 or euros and you haven't even solved the problem yet. And the client's thinking, are you kidding me? Like, what's this bill about? And they're saying, oh, you know, it's part of the process because, you know, we say that you want to spend 90% of your resources solving, like figuring out what the problem is and then 10% to actually solving it, right? So for me, the, the negative experiences that I've had have come from not having clear goals or not having clear communication with stakeholders. That's mm -hmm. really key and has really been a pain and I've had to really go back and have some real, you know, like those come to Jesus moments, like stakeholder management, conflict resolution kind of meetings. I've had to manage those because the people that I was supporting their stakeholder expectations were way off. So making process transparent from the beginning and making yes. outcomes transparent, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, interesting because some sometimes a client doesn't know. Sometimes just what do you want, what do you expect to get out of this? And they often won't have an answer. Mm -hmm. So absolutely making them transparent, but then also making sure that you, that you at least have that conversation with them. And if they don't know what the outcome is to then say, okay, well, maybe let's invest some, some time there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And that's a part, it's also part of the design thinking process that you mm -hmm. sometimes don't know the outcome exactly. Right. That's you why you were hired in the first place. <laughs> yeah. That's why you hired in the first place. Right. Yeah. First to come up with the problem. So you, right. you were far from like understanding the actual outcome, right? 
thinking about maybe KPIs or, you know, how do you mm -hmm. measure success when it comes to design thinking or design thinking mm -hmm. facilitation? How, how do you measure that? That's a great question. And sometimes people forget that even if you're in the design team, that your, your work is directly responsive or is directly correspondent to, to the business. So you really want to make sure that you are aware of numbers. Often, you know, I hear people, if you're not in the business side, say things like, oh, it's not my issue, or I'm here to do this mm -hmm. or something. But if you don't understand the business, then you won't even have the leverage to be able to, 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 to argue for your design. So for example, imagine that you have, you have option A, which is much more expensive than option B uh, in the short term, but in the long term, it's cheaper, right? So if you're able to work that out and work out those numbers, then you're able to better argue for your design. So a couple of KPIs that you want, or the KPIs that you want to use should be directly related to the business outcome. For example, if you're working on you know, in improving the new joiner experience for a company. Do you want to measure happiness? That's pretty tough. Maybe you want to measure something like retention over a six month period, right? So you want to look at very specific facts related to your business, uh, to your business problem. Mm -hmm. And that's that totally makes sense. each time. And I assume you have to kind of figure this out together with the stakeholder, right? Together with the, with the partners beginning of the project. Uh, what are the KPIs? Is that usually part of the conversation to kind of define yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or and do you sometimes play it loose as well and basically would not particularly define it? That's a great question. I I keep the journey loose, but the goal pretty tight. Yeah. The goal pretty pretty strict because you're not really sure how you're going to get there. So a conversation with a with a with a business stakeholder would be something like, "How would we know when we've done a good job?" Very rarely would someone say, well, if all of our employees are happy, right, that's probably not what they're going to say. They're probably going to say something like if, you know, the recruiting costs go down or if something like they're going to give you kind of more of that kind of answer. So if you are a designer and you haven't yet got KPIs uh, for your project, you want to go to your stakeholder and you want to and you, firstly, you can also use your own knowledge your own perspective your your own judgment and say okay what's our business problem we're solving and then from the business problem you can come up with a pretty good idea of what kpis you could suggest using things like increase is it increasing you you can think about in terms of hard and soft facts are we going for hard facts are we going for money saving or are we going for soft facts are we going for you know people retention you know, think about what are those things we're going for And then once you've kind of got in my, in your own mind, what you would then suggest as a KPI, then I would approach my project manager or my stakeholder and say, I think, you know, the project's going well. However, I've just recognized that we don't have KPIs at the moment. Let's maybe take some time to make sure that we, that we do, that we keep on track and we use these KPIs to keep us on track. Um, here's my suggestion that we can use so that in six months time, we can say confidently whether we've, whether we're successful or not, or whether, whether we've created the value that we were looking to create. And then certainly have your stakeholder, whoever that might be, it might be a client, might be an internal business development investor, it could be anyone, and then get their buy-in. Because this is also about human-centered design is co-creation. When you get people bought into the idea, not only are they less likely to have pushback, but they might give you a really great perspective that you hadn't yet considered. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. And sort of they're going to basically report that back after, basically after the project, right? 
Um, That's right. What what are usually the stakeholders that are asking for design thinking? Because you know it's probably not the design department. <laughs> Maybe it is, but I would be curious. Like, what are the uh, the common stakeholders that asking for that um, design thinking facilitation? So I would say there's been a development, Sebastian. We've moved from design thinking and human centered design to being like the HR training tool mm-hmm. to now. Uh, the main requests come from business development managers or sales from the, from the sales department. People that are saying we want to be able to collaborate better with our with our clients, or we want to uncover or unlock opportunities that maybe we're unaware of yet, and we want to use design thinking or human centered design, or we want to reframe the problem, or we want to run an ideation session in order to unlock perhaps hidden potential that we weren't aware of. So that's usually the person who now, you know, in 2021 going to 2022 compared to 2017, that's usually a person. So we've gone from HR to sales. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes sense as well, but I assume then if it's not so much about, I think where we often design thinking is also used, well, c- classically, probably as maybe that's where it's maybe before HR was mostly in product innovation, right? And, um, you know, I think there you find a lot of application for design thinking to come up with product solutions, right, for customer problems, right? Um, using it in sales would obviously mean that um, you really have to then understand basically what are the workflows they're using, right? So basically how they're getting in touch with their customers, right? And that might be different to like maybe a business that does sales via the phone versus like via email. I also assume it's difficult to pull in the other stakeholders, right, to pull in customers into that conversation, right? So you have to work, kind of work with probably data you have or, or insights you, you gather from the group, right? I would say yes, yes and no. I think, you, like you mentioned, leveraging data and using mm-hmm. data is an incredible input. It's an incredible input for sure. And I think the more data you have, the better story that you can tell about what's going on, right? So for sure, I'm with you on the leveraging and using data. Working with the sales team and the client is more like a relationship building approach than it is problem solving. So I would recommend using that problem solving. That's when you want to use your data, like you mentioned. But as you said, isn't it difficult kind of getting the client and the salesperson in the room, like how to get them kind of like talking this, this is actually an opportunity that if you reframe it can actually act more of a relationship building kind of alignment Mm -hmm. tool than problem solving. So for me, particularly when you're working with a Japanese customer, you want to have multiple touch points. You don't want to have, we have one workshop and we either get success in the workshop, like, or we don't, you know what I mean? You really want to make sure that you have multiple touch points. We have multiple meetings, multiple workshops, multiple opportunities to, to gather data because Japan is a very high context culture and you won't get all the information in one meeting. So leveraging data and analytics to tell you part of the story and then running a workshop with the people to tell you the other part of the story and then adding that together and then creating the fuller story, that tends to be the better approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. You don't phrase it as problem solving, right? If you invite the, <laughs> the clients, right? So <laughs> you frame it as a retro almost, right? Yeah. Um, to Like how can we improve the collaboration? How can we make it even better? What are the things we can improve, right? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's really up to the framing. So that totally makes sense. How do you ensure that innovation doesn't, 
get lost in the transition because that's, I think, one of the challenges with, you know, if you come in as an external stakeholder into a company, you try to push innovation forward, you try to bring people together. Well, you maybe set some KPIs, some, but then like there's a lot of work that has to happen after the facilitation, right? Uh, like people actually have to follow through. And there's just so much you can, depending on how the product is set up, you can ensure that, but you can maybe do it in the way you set up the facilitation or the product in the first place. So I'm wondering a little bit, how do you make sure that the innovation that you create doesn't get lost in the transition? Mm -hmm. I think this is a, is a great point. Uh, or implementation, and, sorry. Yeah. And what, one way that you want to approach it is that you want to work in companies or with companies who have a commitment to innovation or to change or to the client experience. If you work with someone that's, or if you're working with someone that says, hey, can you come in and run a workshop for us for an for a day, we just want to see what design thinking is. We have no company commitment to human-centered design or the putting the customer at the center of what we do. We just kind of want to see what it's about. I would treat this customer as someone, you know, that's kind of like window shopping. They're trying to see, you know, is this something that we want to that we want to do or not? And I think it's a great thing because we we can't just assume that everybody is bought into the idea of customer centrism, right? We want to be able to communicate why it's a good idea. So I think as professionals in the industry, I think there is an element of responsibility that we hold to, to build awareness for others that aren't aware. But the real key uh, to ensuring the impact is that the action has to be in line with the business goals. So what we're doing, if you're like one, if you're a one spin-off inside the company and it's not aligned with business goals. For example, if you're Toyota and the, the goal of Toyota is by the year 2050 to be known as a mobility company, they don't want to be known as a car company. They want to be known as a mobility company. So if you're running an engagement that's not in line with the long-term vision of the organization, I think that's where you might get an initial excitement, but you're not going to get that long-term impact because you're not in line with the long-term business goals of the organization. So try to align yourself uh, with the long-term business goals. But I can hear people saying, yeah, but what about innovation? The goal is to be in line with the vision. And then the way in which you align with the vision, that's where you get to be creative. That's where you get to bring new business ideas. That's where you get to build new business models or new services not in rethinking the company strategy or rethinking the company vision, because that's usually set. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. When we were talking before we um, doing the episode here, we had um, a chat and I think something you have been sharing there is that design thinking can bridge cultures. And specifically in Japan, you know, maybe it can, you know, uh, it is also something where you can, you know, maybe break hierarchy maybe, right? And you can really bring people together. And it's also um, sort of a form of language. So can you talk a little bit more um, about that maybe? Yeah, design thinking or the, the, the elements of human-centered design that really help the rigidity of Japanese structures is instead of saying, okay, everyone, this is a flat playing field, you're the CEO, and I'm an intern, but we're the same. This won't be a buy-in in Japan. People won't buy that. They won't believe you. So what you want to say is, instead of you saying, okay, we're all the same, you want to say, we're all different. And each person has to speak with that voice. You're the CEO, so we need you to speak as a CEO voice because you're the expert at being a CEO. 
However, this other person, they're an expert at being a sales manager. And this other person is an expert at being an HR manager. And you as a CEO can't speak over the HR manager on HR things because you're the expert. This other person is the expert. So this is one thing that, that we do is this, this leveraging multidisciplinary teams is one way that we leverage barriers to innovation. Another thing that seems so simple, um, but it's really quite effective, is that we make sure that in when we're running human-centered design sessions, that we mix both individual work, so individual time, thinking time with group work. We never would run, for example, like a, a spoken brainstorming session in Japan that would just never happen because you would just lose voices. So that'd be the, those couple of things that, that come to mind in terms of how human-centered design, you, you can work through culture. Because I am I often hear people say, oh, it's Japan, so what are you going to do? Or it's culture, so what are you going to do? You know, we even see, for example, in, the, in, in German culture, that there's a saying that even if I don't say anything, it's like enough of a compliment. Right. So if I don't complain, it's enough of a compliment. Right. So there is a German saying. But if you, mm -hmm. for example, place a rose thorn bud feedback mechanism in front of a German person, they're required to give you positive feedback, negative feedback, as well as opportunities. So what you want to do is not change the culture. You can't go to Germany and say, OK, everyone say positive things. What you want to do is create a framework or a structure in which people can be successful. And in Germany, it's creating like a roast on bud. And in Japan, it's certainly making sure that we split individual work and group work, that we clearly define divergence and convergence, and that we support in, the, in those short iteration sprints. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I can assume, you know, I think if you have, you know, I assume this becomes then... Um, very challenging if you have multiple, because you were pointing out a couple of things that are very culture specific, right? So really some knowledge, like how you, how you deal with like a, a Japanese uh, client and whether it's maybe a, a German one or European mm -hmm. one. Um, if you have like global teams, then I think you may have to come like to some kind of generic approach. So you can't really apply it that way, which I think maybe more and more is also the case that mm -hmm. you, that you kind of have to deal with that, right? That's right. And you may be annoyed about my last question, but like, I think you, because you probably hear it a lot, you know, design thinking obviously used to be, you know, something where you sit together in a workshop uh, and have some posters and a wall, right? Mm -hmm. um, so of course, this is not the reality anymore for the past uh, two years. So how has that changed to, for you? Oh my gosh, Sebastian, before COVID, not only had I never run a remote design thinking or human-centered design session, it wasn't even a little bit on my radar. It wasn't even like, you know what, maybe in the future we can also, whatever. I was one of those people that stupidly bought into the idea, there's something magical about being in the room or there's something magical about holding a post-it and writing with a Sharpie or whatever. This is all rubbish. This is not true. And the last two years has taught me that there's so much positive things that come from, from running design sessions remotely. Everything from, for example, when I'm running bilingual sessions, for example, if I have people who some don't speak Japanese or some don't speak English, how quickly they can just copy and paste a bit of text into Google Translate and then still follow along in the discussion. Or people who are, I even remember one day I was walking, I walked into a room and there were nine men in this board and there was one chair missing or there was one chair empty. 
And it was, they, they, were, they also on their board had a female. And I said, where's Tanaka-san? And then they said, she'll be late because she's taking her child to school. And then I thought, and then I asked, and then they said, yeah, you know, because she has to take his child to school. And I promise you, those other nine, from one of those nine men, they probably have children as well. But the the role of like taking kids to school and that kind of stuff tends mm-hmm. to fall on the female in Japan. Mm-hmm. And these, and this idea of like, and because the workshops that we used to do, used to we used to run in Tokyo. And if you're a small to medium enterprise, you're often not in Tokyo. Maybe you're in the outskirts, like you're in Chiba, and your kid goes to school where you live, which is in Chiba. So you have to take your kid to school and then come into Tokyo, right? So all of these little things that, well, for me, didn't I didn't even recognize how, how this was a barrier, not even to innovation, just to people getting into the room, right? Mm-hmm. And I think as, as human-centered designers and as workshop facilitators, we need to look at the, the journey of our participants getting to the room whether that's a physical room or whether that's that's a digital room, and then their journey in the room. We can be responsible or we can take part responsibility for what's going on while they're in the room, but we don't know how they showed up. We don't know if they got divorced yesterday. We don't know if their mother died on the way to work. We don't know that, right? And so there's a lot that goes on pre that journey. And I think the remote world has really enabled a lot of people to show up in a way that's more, it's easier for them. And I also know it's more difficult because people are working with kids at home and all that other kind of stuff. Yes, I know that and I appreciate that. But I think at the same time, all in all, we've seen that as a positive thing. We've also seen it as a positive thing for people that are generally more introverted people that they've been able to read more, you know, and write more. So instead of a discussion, we invite, okay, use the chat to write your responses. This has been a really great way to include people who for a very long time, I would say we didn't really design for We designed for a person who would ask questions. We designed for a person who would answer questions. We designed, you know, for that kind of active participant, but that wasn't always the case. And we found, and now we're being forced uh, to use other ways to help participants become uh, more active. And I think for me now, however, as much as I I, I think remote has brought us so much, for me, ideally, like, let's go a couple of years down the track when we have COVID at some kind of reasonable level, not like, for example, now, I would love to see individual uh, work or individual work or this kind of like divergent methods. I would love to see that remote. For So for example, things like ideation, things like the creative matrix, things like feedback or something like that. I would love to see that remote, but I would also love to see maybe more of those convergent methods, whether you're building a prototype or whether you're having a a team discussion, maybe we might be able to, you know, create even kind of a hybrid model where some of the session on some of the days is remote and some of the session on other days is, is then hybrid. Another thing that's also really great about remote is that is, is documentation. All we used to do as facilitators, just take photos of what happened and that's it. Now we have, you know, tools like mural that help us completely map the design process and we can show the client, this is how we came to the decision. So there's really a lot that's been really, really good things that have that have been bought by COVID, but I promise you, by, or by remote work, but I wouldn't have been someone who would have jumped to remote work. I promise you, if COVID hadn't happened, we had this conversation, I wouldn't have said what I just said, I promise you. 
Yeah, in the beginning, like, you know, also everyone saw that's just going to be like a short-term thing and we're just going to go back to normal very soon. But I think it, it has really shifted, I think, um, you know, innovation methods, like facilitation and so on, I think, quite drastically. Actually, right. I made uh, an interesting experience um, some weeks ago. Um, I was on a large um, workshop, actually, added location so we were actually all together uh, but we were still uh, it was not about design thinking it was just a, a workshop about um, digital innovation and actually we were using um, digital tools um, so mirror in this case but we are being at also together at the same time yeah because it, it just provided everyone also the ability to you know um, to contribute quicker mm -hmm. and i was mm -hmm. like really surprised about like the way how well this worked um yeah. so that's for me ideal it, yeah yeah so you were kind of you could you could leverage the digital gathering in in, in in some aspects and sometimes there were breakout sessions again so um then we had smaller groups and they were physical again so you were actually using normal process but then we had when we were all together and this was for many parts of the workshop we actually used um, used the digital tools basically while sitting together in a big round, and you could use time uh, voting, all of these functions mm -hmm. very well, and to gather and, and bring together a lot of people. So, yeah, I th I think it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that's I hope that's the next phase. As in, even if we are, for example, uh, together one day, um, that we that we don't lose the benefits of these digital tools, and that somehow, you know, through the through the metaverse or whatever it ends up being, <laughs> um, that we can le leverage the benefit of being together with also the benefits of um, of what technology brings us in terms of ease of access and people getting involved and engaged and documentation. So I think, yeah, finding that sweet spot between face-to-face -face and technology is going to be a really exciting next chapter. Yeah, because I think there is sort of a rational and emotional factor to this, right? So you can think about basically the functional value of adding technology to the workshop facilitation, right? So maybe this makes things more efficient and you can maybe create faster results. But then you're going to lose sort of the emotion factor, which people should not underestimate, is that people actually come together and they're working together and they're creating they're creating bridges and there's connection between people. This is going to be in the long term helping the culture in order to move innovation forward or just strengthen the, the culture in general. So talking about, for example, that specific workshop where I was participating, like we were leveraging the digital tools for the efficiency, for the um, um, for the out output, but then we were still together because that allowed us, everyone to connect, to socialize and have these emotional factors, these mm -hmm. soft factors that are also important, I think, to mm -hmm. design thinking. And sort of bringing, bringing these two worlds together, because that's, I think, one of the downsides of purely digital uh, design thinking stage that you kind of lose that factor a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a little bit harder to bring people together and, you know, have a chat and a, a coffee chat and all of these different things that you do. And yeah, exactly. they're also valuable, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> thank you so much. Uh, Brittany, this has been uh, super uh, interesting. I think I hope the audience learned a lot. I'm pretty sure. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up uh, because of time. Uh, but again, thank you so much for for taking the time. No, likewise, and I think what you're doing uh, with your with your Design Drive podcast is a, is a really exciting thing. And so, congratulations to you too. It was a pleasure to be a part of it. Thank you. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up. Let me know in the comments or by taking me in a post. What were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provided you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time. Cheers.